From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As more counties hit a vaccination milestone in Colorado, a COVID-19 variant raises concern on the western slope. We'll get perspective on what all this means for public health. Then, those who advocate abolishing the police say the concept's nothing new in white neighborhoods. They are able to reach out and call for help when needed, but to otherwise not be actively policed. That's not unlike what many of our communities are asking for. We'll hear from a Denver civil rights activist who believes after a year of unrest, change is happening, but not fast enough. Plus, we revisit a novel based on an American who became embroiled in political unrest in Peru. The Gringa is up for a Colorado Book Award. The end was near. The work was enormous. How did Colorado lawmakers get it done? Counting down the minutes till you can get to your bed. It's been that and cherry coke funny to think about all these laws getting pushed across the line by people who are basically on their last legs of cherry coke. <laughs> How, and more importantly, what state lawmakers accomplished this session in the latest episode of the CPR News Politics podcast, Purplish, everywhere you get podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. More counties in Colorado have reached a new vaccination rate milestone. But what does that actually mean for public health? And a variant of COVID-19 has led to a state of emergency in Mesa County. How serious is the risk? For some context on what's happening in the state, CPR health reporter John Daly joins us. He's been covering the pandemic from the start. And hi, John. Hey, Andrea. Let's start with this COVID-19 vaccination rate. This week, Governor Polis announced that in 12 counties, 70 percent of eligible residents have received at least one dose. What do we know about those particular places? Yeah, that's right. The governor's office released that news yesterday, noting that those counties have passed President Biden's 70 percent goal and that they did it before his target date of July 4th. So let's take a look at those 12. They include the state's most populous county, Denver, which just reached that milestone this week. Others include large metro area counties like Broomfield, Boulder and Jefferson. And also some mountain counties are doing well, like Summit, Mineral, Eagle, Pitkin, Route and Gunnison. And topping that list are two southwest counties near Durango that are knocking it out of the park on vaccinations, Mm -hmm. San Miguel and San Juan. In that county, 89 percent of eligible residents have gotten at least one dose. And for comparison, about 54 percent of the state's population is vaccinated with at least one dose. Uh, The national figure, according to The New York Times, is slightly less, 52 percent. So is there anything these communities have in common? Well, we know from various looks at national data that blue or Democratic-leaning states and counties are getting vaccinated at higher rates than those that vote Republican, and Colorado seems to be mirroring that trend. So has that translated to fewer cases of COVID-19? Absolutely. Hospitalization rates have also dropped significantly in places where vaccination rates are high. When it announced it hit that 70 percent threshold on Wednesday, the city of Denver shared that there are less than 200 people currently hospitalized with COVID-19 in the Denver metro region. That's the lowest point since early in the pandemic, April of 2021. 
And the city says it's seen a 90 percent reduction in case rates. Now, a county may have a 70 percent vaccination rate, but it's likely there are pockets in those communities that haven't reached that rate. Absolutely. You know, take a look at Denver again. Denver's health agencies updated their data this week. About 35 percent of Latinos older than 12 are vaccinated in Denver County. That's less than half the rate for white Denverites. Latino residents make up 29 percent of the Denver population, but represent 47 percent of cases, 46 percent of hospitalizations and 30 percent of deaths. And if you look at a map of uh, Denver uh, neighborhoods, the highest case rates are in some of the mostly Latino neighborhoods, like in West Denver, like Barnum West, Westwood, and Ruby Hill. Dr. Lilia Cervantes is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine at Denver Health who's been tracking this closely. There are some very high-risk neighborhoods where most of the community are first-generation or foreign-born individuals, and that is where we're seeing the highest disparities. And we know that some of those neighborhoods have been slower to take up the vaccine. And she says that's for a variety of reasons, like having lingering doubts and concerns about the safety and efficacies, efficacy of the vaccines or that they might make you sick enough that you would miss a day of work. Or can you get time off to get the vaccine? So there's a lot of factors. There's misinformation as well, distrust of the health system or the government. So lots of things going on there. In terms of folks getting sick from COVID-19 in those communities, we know that these neighborhoods also have higher density, more multi-generational housing, and a lot of people living there are essential workers, so they're more likely to work in a job where they interact with more people uh, than if they were able to work from home. So it sounds like the risk of COVID-19 is going to remain high in these areas where people are unvaccinated. That's right. I also spoke to Dr. Fernando Holguin. He's a pulmonologist and critical care doctor at the Latino Research and Policy Center at the Colorado School of Public Health. He worries the pandemic will keep flaring up in spots. I think the communities, for example, that are predominantly Hispanic in parts of the state or in other states, and those communities, if vaccination rates are poor, they're at risk uh, especially moving into the fall of seeing increasing waves of infections. It is really critical to become vaccinated. Now, how are black Coloradans doing in terms of getting vaccinated? I know that's a concern. Sure. According to the state's dashboard, they're lagging, too, but not to the extent of Latino Coloradans. The uh, black Coloradans make up about four percent of the state's population, but are a little less than three percent of those who've been vaccinated. What does all this mean for how the pandemic is going to play out? So I think it is really important to think about. Big picture, I think this shows where the pandemic is headed in Colorado. Doctors and the health experts I've spoken with predict we're going to see a very uneven pandemic going forward. They expect the neighborhoods, cities, counties, states, even countries with the highest vaccination rates will see the pandemic kind of fade. But those places and populations with lower vaccination rates can expect the pandemic to go on and continue to be hotspots. The state health department has been issuing charts comparing vaccination rates and COVID-19 cases and hospitalization rates county by county. So those with higher vaccination rates are seeing less impact from the virus and vice versa. And the one thing that's most worrisome are those more transmissible variants that we keep hearing about. So far, the vaccines have performed well against them. But if a variant emerges that escapes the vaccines, you know, that could really upend the progress that's being made. We've heard a lot about herd immunity during the pandemic. What does all this mean for that? 
Well, you know, as far as herd immunity, community immunity, it's also been called. It's important to keep in mind that that herd is much bigger than Denver or any single place. Denverites and those in other high vaccination counties have largely done their part. But since this virus emerged from a place in China, most of us have never heard of before. We've learned the hard way that global travel has shrunken the globe. And, uh, you know, that's uh, uh, having a big impact. So we should all be concerned and watch places like India and Brazil, health experts say, and that's why the U.S. and other major economies, the G7, are under pressure to distribute more vaccines internationally. So let's move to Mesa County. This week, officials issued a public health alert. It warns people about the transition of a highly contagious COVID-19 variant. It's the one that was first discovered in India. And what do we know about it? The highly transmissible Delta variant is spreading quickly in Mesa County. For weeks, case numbers have been rising. Jeff Coor is the county's health department director. He issued a public health warning this week urging residents to get vaccinated and stay home if they're sick. We're considering this an emergency because our case count is driven by this widespread community transmission of the Delta variant in Mesa County. We're a huge hotspot. The county has nearly 250 cases per 100,000 people, but its vaccination rate is just under 40 percent. Now, it seems like there's some mixed messaging in Mesa County. It's a public health emergency, but then no shutdowns or other restrictions to try to control the spread. You know, there was never a great appetite there or in some other parts of Colorado from many elected officials and their constituents to adopt tougher public health measures and restrictions on businesses and the public. And that's especially been true in more rural and conservative and less densely populated parts of Colorado. Once things start opening up, and we've seen this around the country, even the globe, it it really does get harder to clamp down. Based on your reporting, how likely is it that any community would reenact restrictions when people are already getting back to normal? Well, you know, indeed, it seems like that would be a tall order in many places. And the governor, top state health leaders, doctors I've spoken to say vaccinations are providing the way out of the pandemic. The consensus among folks I've talked to is that reenacting restrictions, especially in places that resisted them in the first place, would be tough. And a lot of local leaders and public health directors are hoping that as numbers improve, that's something they won't have to contemplate. But, you know, those numbers are are likely to improve mostly by improving vaccine acceptance. That that's what they think. What about the number of people being hospitalized around the state? How are cases tracking there? You know, I'd say if you look at the metrics tracked by the state health department, the pandemic here in, in COVID, COVID-19 pandemic keeps trending into mostly positive territory. Colorado's seven-day rate of coronavirus tests coming back positive fell to 2.5 percent this week. You know, for some context, that's the lowest point since the start of the pandemic. Kind of hard to believe. But the threat of infection and hospitalization and death remains for the unvaccinated. There were 24 deaths statewide in the last week of May. That's still well above the 13 from the week of June 28th, which was the pandemic low. Uh, Nearly 400 people are still hospitalized right now with confirmed cases, and that's far below the surge of late last year, but still above last summer's peak. And on another note, almost all the people who are hospitalized with COVID-19 share a common trait. They're unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. 
And after a year of, you know, this relentless work, the constant churn of unvaccinated patients continues to wear down doctors and nurses tasked with trying to keep them alive. Here's what Dr. Sandeep Vijan of Parkview Medical Center in Pueblo told me. We are tired. We've been doing this for a year. We are emotionally tired, tired of seeing people die. Uh, We are physically tired. So, you know, really big impact on those frontline providers. The state health department released data yesterday of breakthrough infections. Those are not unexpected cases that happen when people have gotten one or both vaccine shots but still get sick. And since mid-January, the state has recorded nearly 170,000 confirmed COVID-19 cases. It identified around 2,900 cases of of the breakthrough infections. That's less than 2%. Doctors say that shows the effectiveness of the vaccines most of the time in protecting people from getting sick. It's clear the pandemic is not over, especially globally, and it's easy to lose perspective uh, how to find balance between living without fear and not being reckless. For sure, you know, as we've been talking about, uh, things are pretty tenuous where the vaccination levels are low, like, again, India and Brazil, places like that. And many experts believe the pandemic won't really end until people around the world get vaccinated. That's why there's such a global push to do that. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, happy to. CPR health reporter John Daly, who continues to track cases of COVID-19 in Colorado and efforts to end the pandemic. One year ago, the country was immersed in protests over the death of George Floyd. Colorado was no exception. We'd been hearing perspectives from different people a year later. Today, we talk with an activist in Denver. Elizabeth Epps calls herself an abolitionist, and she spent the last several years fighting for racial and social justice. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you. What do you mean when you say you're an abolitionist? So when I say that I'm an abolitionist in in the most literal sense, I'm talking about abolition of the prison industrial complex, all of that entails. Um, But in a broader sense, abolition is an act of creation. So communities that have clean air and whose water is free of lead and whose schools are free of police and communities that have opportunities for rest and play and work don't need cages. And so abolition is about doing the work to build and create sustainable, healthy communities. We'll get back to policing in a few minutes, but I want to talk about those people inevitably that are going to be a danger to society. Are you saying that no one should be locked up? I do start from a premise that humans don't belong in cages. And sometimes I find it astounding that that proposition is so controversial. It's natural, I think, to then uh, talk about outliers and say, well, what about a person who did this? And what about a person who did that? But in reality, folks who are familiar with, particularly here in Colorado, will recognize that our jails are not full of people who did the thing that you want to call the outlier. And what we can do is work to create situations where people aren't, you know, aren't committing harm. And that uh, when we start going down a list of examples of behavior that we find reprehensible, most reprehensible, we'll recognize that that's not what our local jails are filled with anyway. 
And what you're saying, you're saying that prisons and jails are these cages, and you think the norm should be that folks are not incarcerated. Is that right? Again, I'm just gonna gonna say that the, the premise is that people don't belong in cages. It doesn't mean that tonight at midnight we raise the bars and everyone goes free. It means we intentionally and consciously bring our neighbors home in a way that is safe for both them and we who are lucky enough to be free in this moment. You know, if <laughs> if cages kept us safer, then surely these United States of America would be by any objective and subjective measure the safest land in the world, right? We put more people in cages than anywhere else. So does that correspond with less interpersonal harm? I don't think so. Let's talk about late last year when Denver's Independent Monitor released a report about the police response to the George Floyd protests. You were involved in those. And the report said the protests were mostly peaceful, though it mentioned destruction of property and fires that took place. But it also said there were major problems with the police response, including the failure to track the use of less lethal weapons. You were actually injured during the protest. Tell us about that. Sure. You know, so this time a year ago, many of us were at the Capitol um, and in the streets of Denver rallying and protesting and enduring directly versions of police brutality that, that we were not ironically out there protesting against. A year later, I still have a quite visible mark on my back from being shot in the back with something that Denver police calls a less lethal round. The fact that it's a year later suggests to me that it's going to be a mark that I'll have for, for life. It's significant that it's on my back. When I hear the police talk about mostly peaceful and, and talk about property destruction, um, it's difficult to hear in light of the independent monitor's response because we who are there understand that, you know, when you have state actors who are armed and armored, they're in tanks and in full body gear, Mm. the police brought that violence in the middle of a global pandemic to unleash chemical weapons on our neighbors, on community members. It astounds me that it's, that it's controversial that their response was, was over the top. When we talk about property damage, there was an an incident that I do recall where a sandwich shop had some windows damaged, I believe, and we heard elected officials expressing significantly more outrage over broken glass than they ever expressed for broken bodies. And to have them be so upfront about where their priorities are was in a sense refreshing because it was like the veil was pulled back. We can stop pretending that you care about our lives Things can be replaced. Ink and paint can be scrubbed off, washed away by rain. But, you know, blood running in streets, that can't be undone. I mean, if you were going to step back a little bit and say it's not equating those things, but at what point do you start to defend a city from destruction? And I, I just have to push back a little. Is there a point when someone has to step in? You know, we can say it's not equating, but it is equating to ask in the same breath about, you know, at at what point does someone step in? At what point does someone step in and start protecting community members from police violence? I think it's offensive to suggest that things need protecting. And you don't think that the report, it sounds like you don't believe that it was adequate or an adequate condemnation of what you saw over the course of the protests? No, I'm not saying that. I, I, 
I think that the report was accurate. And I think that, frankly, the Office of the Independent Monitor, um, at least its head for the past few years and how it's um, conducted itself and the work that it's done has been a real asset to the city and has been something that uh, Denver is incredibly lucky to have. So do you see, given the Independent Monitor's report, more awareness about injustice? And has anything changed in this past year? That's a good question. Um, Has anything changed in this past year? I have to believe that the answer is, is yes, because believing that in the most you know, esoteric sense is part of what helps me keep going each day. Um, change isn't happening fast enough, but it's happening. I think that the sort of progress that I would want to see in terms of a safer community is going to be achieved through direct action, but also through legislation and litigation. And I think there's been progress on those fronts. Um, you know, summer is a dangerous time, mm-hmm. many places, including in Denver. Kids are out, cops are active. And so I I think that I, like a lot of folks, are probably in some ways on edge, waiting to see what this summer brings. We'll see. I guess it's kind of a TBD, honestly. We'll see. You know, this phrase that's been used quite a bit when we go back to policing, especially in the last year, abolish the police. Let's talk a little bit about that phrase and dissect it. What does it mean to you specifically? When I speak of it, I'm I'm more inclined to use the phrase abolish policing, which does mean something distinct to me. But I recognize that, uh, you know, I'm moving into a phase of of middle age, I guess I can call it, where I'm excited to get to learn from and follow the lead of younger activists who are leading the work now and who are in the most literal sense going to be the ones alive to carry it forward. They're telling us that they want to name the work Abolish the Police. And I'm comfortable ceding this to them, even if on its own, it isn't the phrase that is most comfortable to me. You ask, what does it mean to me? And it means naming that which we want. When we talk about abolishing policing, it's so important to recognize that communities, particularly communities of color um, in Colorado, Native and Indigenous and Black and Brown communities, that what they're asking for is not unlike what many white privileged communities already have. There are communities, and we don't need to name the neighborhood names in Denver, but where they already have abolished policing. They don't have active policing driving through their streets or their gated neighborhoods monitoring their children's behavior. They are able to to reach out and call for help when needed, but to otherwise not be actively policed. That's not unlike what, what many of our communities are asking for. What seems, you know, to some folks to be such a an unfathomable proposition a community free of policing, I, you know, would invite those folks to consider that there are already neighborhoods that have that as a reality. I also think it's appropriate to be intentional about naming that which we want, even though we know it is, you know, we're in this for the long haul. We're in this for generations. Your key issue these days is helping bail people out of jail who can't afford it. How do you see this as an issue of racial justice? I mean, cash bail, wealth-based detention is inherently racist, classist, and cash bail, the way that it functions in Colorado, 
is to further penalize people who are already most marginalized, who are already most vulnerable, who are already overcharged, and then to add a monetary component to their freedom. We refer to it as paying ransom because that that's what we're doing. Cash bail is a, is a race justice issue because our presence of black and brown folks in our communities being overrepresented in the criminal legal system is astounding and is much higher. I mean, cash bail is another way that exploits that. You're close to Elijah McLean's family. He died in 2019 after police in Aurora confronted him, and then he was injected with ketamine. Currently, there are several investigations into the incident, including a grand jury investigation by Attorney General Phil Weiser. What do you want to come out of that? I want Elijah's family to have whatever version of justice this plane, this earth, this society can give them. I want that for them. I don't know what it looks like, but more than anything, I want them to have peace and justice. And so if there's a particular result from these investigations that would give that to them, then I'm rooting for them. From a broader community perspective, I'm not optimistic about the grand jury. I think that If the state were going to bring charges, they would do so directly, I think. You know, I would say I'm hoping for some transparency, but I think that's unlikely. I think that we've seen that the cops who have been disciplined for the incident were were disciplined for actions related to taking and sharing photos mocking sweet Elijah's death, um, not for the actions that led to the death itself, you know. Police and law enforcement adjacent folks, including attorney generals, do not have, I think, particularly good track records of policing themselves. And I think that we should have measured realistic expectations because some will say that like a best case scenario may be three of the officers being charged. And I, I just would push back and I would, I'm not sure how that makes things safer for anyone in Aurora for those three cops to be charged. That may be the right result, but are Aurora cops less brutal if those three are charged? I doubt it. Is their budget any smaller if those three cops are charged? I doubt it. Is the next cop likely to give some pause and say, maybe I'll be more gentle with this 23-year-old because those cops are charged? I I doubt it. Really, you don't think discipline would, in fact, affect other people on the force? I do not think that disciplining them is likely at all to impact behavior. I want to be very clear, though, it still could be the just thing to do. Um, What I would like to see, I I think that a version of of justice related to them would be them losing their license to ever work as police officers, would be them losing their ability to ever carry a firearm in this or any other state. That would keep us safer. I think the budget being shrunk by the proportion of those officers... um, you know, job positions would be something closer to justice. But no, I don't think disciplining them is likely to change behavior, although I do think it is clearly the appropriate thing to do. Elizabeth, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Elizabeth Epps is with the Colorado Freedom Fund. It raises money for Coloradans unable to pay bail. Here are earlier interviews with Denver's police chief, the former independent monitor, and a woman who founded a nonprofit to fight systemic racism at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Some of Colorado's largest employers offer a matching gift or workplace giving promotion to their employees. 
Using a program like this, you can often double your giving impact. Companies like IBM, Google, United Health Group, Excel Energy, and Chevron top the list for gifts to CPR. See if your company matches on the support page at CPR.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. About 25 years ago in Lima, Peru, an American woman named Lori Berenson was sentenced to 20 years in prison. It was for collaborating with a terrorist organization. The case enraged many Peruvians who saw her as meddling in the country's unrest at the time. In the United States, Berenson became a cause celebre for U.S. officials who fought for years for her release. Andrew Altschul teaches creative writing at Colorado State University. He wrote a novel called The Gringa based on Berenson's story. It's a finalist for a Colorado Book Award in the literary fiction category. I spoke with Altschul last June. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Before I read your novel, I remember generalities about Laurie Berenson's story uh, from the 1990s and beyond, but not a lot of specifics. Tell us about what Berenson was doing in Peru when all this happened. According to her, she'd been there as a journalist. She was writing articles about government and the post-war period for a couple of U.S.-based magazines. This is a story that the Peruvian government rejected outright, and they claimed that she had always come as a kind of soldier of fortune who was bent on restarting the war, on fomenting revolution from the moment that she got there. And in your book, the character based loosely on Berenson is named Leonora or Leo Gelb. Can you explain how you told the story? Sure. The novel is told by uh, another American character about 10 years later on the occasion of Leonora Gelb's parole. She had been sentenced to life in prison as a terrorist, but she'd been paroled. And there's an American expat. He's a kind of a failed novelist, a layabout who has um, left the U.S. in the wake of the Iraq invasion and the detainee abuses at Abu Ghraib. He's just kind of left the country in disgust and wants to live this sort of hedonistic apolitical life, but through a series of unexpected events, gets drawn into this story and commits himself to writing a profile of Leonora Gelb, which he very quickly figures out he's absolutely unqualified to write. And I'd like you to read from the book, since it offers some understanding of what was happening in Peru in the 80s and 90s. So could you read the first paragraph at the beginning of chapter two? Sure. This is Andres kind of coming to terms with this story that he is agreeing to write. And Andres is the narrator. Yes. Here's what I knew about the war. I knew there'd been one, a dirty one, though like most Americans, I didn't yet know what that meant. I'd heard of The Shining Path, maybe in some long-ago history class or cable documentary, but I couldn't have told you the first thing about their beliefs or their tactics. I couldn't have said when the war began or when it ended or how close it came to bringing down the Peruvian state. When friends referred to Sendero Luminoso, I nodded gravely, mirroring their grief, but I didn't ask questions. I didn't want to know details, body counts, who butchered whom. I didn't want to hear the arguments, though I knew they still festered. The fury and righteousness, the fear of one's neighbor were too familiar, reminders of a life I'd tried to leave behind. Can you talk about what that time was like in Peru, just briefly? Well, this is the the mid-90s. 
But essentially, um, you know, if a country can be said to have post-traumatic stress disorder, that would apply quite well to Peru in the 90s. From 1980 to 1992, there had been an internal conflict between the government and a variety of armed leftist revolutionary groups, but the most prominent one was the Shining Path, or Sendero Luminoso. And by the end of these 12 years, there were 70,000 Peruvians who'd been killed, split about equally between deaths um, that were the responsibility of the revolutionaries and deaths that were at the hands of the government and the military. And so this affected Peruvians from all walks of life, all socioeconomic strata, all ethnicities, all areas of the country. And by the time it was over, this was a country that had grown used to lockdown, that didn't want their children to go out unaccompanied. This was a country that had seen kidnappings and assassinations in broad daylight, that had seen military checkpoints at busy intersections in affluent neighborhoods of Lima. And by the time it was all over, they were really in shock. And I think it's also fair to say they were completely exhausted by both revolution and counter-revolutionary measures. And most of the country, I think it's fair to say, really hoped that there would be peace, whatever that meant. And so the arrival of Lurie Berenson and the renewal or the potential renewal of hostilities by revolutionary groups really came as a shock to a country that really wanted nothing more of this, that had really seen quite enough. Now, you've been clear that this book is not meant to be about Berenson. She's just the inspiration for the story. But what jumped out at you that made you want to write a novel? Well, there were a lot of uh, reasons that I gravitated towards this novel. And I lived in Peru in the late 1990s for a couple of years, and I was aware of this story as it was happening. And I didn't think to write a novel about it until about 10 years later when Lori Berenson herself was paroled. And the outpouring of fury and rage towards her, even 15 years after she'd been arrested and disappeared, was really kind of shocking to me. I mean, she, in many ways, was like the most hated person in Peru, and not just by conservatives or supporters of the government, by people on the left as well, who felt that she had betrayed their cause in some way or drawn a kind of unwelcome attention to them. And so a privileged American who shows up in a foreign country and gets involved in a political situation that's just much bigger than she has any capability of understanding. It was interesting to me as an expatriate at the time, but it was also interesting in a larger sense in the ways that it fits into a you know an entire century's context of American misadventures in Latin America and the way that America and Americans have so often sort of showed up in places that they don't understand particularly well. And begun trying to assert their will and impose their values and reorganize economies or governments based on their priorities. How does Leo, your character, end up entangled in a terrorist organization? Well, like I assume, most people who are accused of terrorism, the intention is never to become a terrorist. Nobody wakes up or is born wanting to kill people or kidnap people or blow up banks. Uh, so Leonora, like many activists, I think, grows progressively disenchanted with the possibilities for peaceful protest. She starts out working for an NGO in the slums of Lima, and she witnesses unprovoked governmental violence against the citizens. Um, and she wants to understand 
how she can do something that would be more effective than carrying a picket sign or teaching ESL classes or marching on a Capitol building only to get tear gassed or shot with rubber bullets. And so she eventually allies herself with a group of people for whom the war never really ended, for whom the goals of the war are still very much alive and still very much unfulfilled. And the question is always, if the things that we've been doing to try to enact change don't work, if in fact they are met with unprovoked government violence and we're going to be killed for doing them or detained indefinitely and tortured for doing them, then maybe we need to try some stronger medicine. Maybe we need to change our tactics to something that might have a more dramatic effect. Leo has some money, a trust fund from her parents, and she helps uh, set up some of the terrorists in a house. And you portray her as someone who so wanted to be involved and push for justice that she's taken advantage of, almost marginalized by this group. What prompted you to depict her that way? Well, one of the things that was really fascinating to me about the Lori Berenson story was the incongruousness of the different accounts. On the one hand, Berenson, who was renting a house in an affluent suburb of Lima called La Molina, quite a large house in which 12 or 13 uh, leftist militants were living at the time of her arrest, has always said she had no idea who was living in the house. She's certain that they weren't terrorists, but she didn't know anything about them. She just needed roommates, people to help pay the rent, etc. And on the other hand, you had the government who claimed from the very beginning that she was an intentional terrorist mastermind, that she had every understanding of what was happening, and that in fact she had a leadership role in the group. To me, both of those stories always seemed completely preposterous. It was obvious to me that somewhere in the middle was a much more complicated and nuanced truth. Where I settled, which may or may not have any resemblance to what really happened, is a kind of series of misunderstandings, both deliberate and accidental, to the extent that everybody in the House has a slightly different understanding of what they are planning. And Leonora, as clearly the most naive person in the House, she's American, she has less than a year's experience in Peru, knows a little about the history, but not a lot. She is bankrolling at least their residence, and so they need her, but she ends up kind of caught in the middle and not fully aware of the things that are going on around her. So I try to portray her as not quite the innocent dupe that the real person tried to portray herself at in her trials, but also something far short of this terrorist mastermind that the government wanted to portray. What were the challenges of trying to turn real life and history into fiction? Well, there were certainly artistic challenges, but the more um, difficult challenges were ethical, at least the way that I approached the book. I mean, these were events that involved real people, that involved a real country against the backdrop of a national trauma that killed 70,000 people. You know, I am undoubtedly, just as Leonora Gelb is, just as Lori Berenson was, an outsider to this culture and to this history. There's no way that I could understand it the way that a Peruvian can. And the additional challenge is we're talking about wartime. We're talking about a period where there is no official story, that everyone who lived through it had a different experience of it. 
to this day, no two Peruvians will tell the story of the warriors exactly the same. And that was something I had to come to terms with when I was interviewing, you know, literally dozens of people from all walks of life. I tried to build that uncertainty into the novel itself and really give voice to as many Peruvian experiences as I could. And Leo ends up standing trial. It's quite gripping. It's actually tough to call it a trial. Describe it for us. Um, well, she is, uh, and this is fairly close to to the historical fact. She was tried in a in a military court at the time. The procedures of military courts in Peru were, had been held over from the war years, and uh, judges were anonymous. They wore hoods because there had been assassinations of judges who had convicted members of the Shining Path. Uh, but more importantly, the real trial took place in the court of public opinion. Um, shortly after her capture, she was put on television. This was another um, policy from the war years. The terrorism suspects were were put through a, a presentation to the press. And where anyone might have, have expected this young American woman who had just been arrested as a terrorist to claim that she had no idea what was happening, that she got caught up in something that she understood didn't understand, to apologize to the country, to say, you know, I just want to go home. It's all been a misunderstanding. On the contrary, what Lori Berenson did was she launched into a, a very angry tirade. You can still see the footage or the photographs on the internet. She was red in the face. Her fists were bald. She was leaning towards the, the reporters very, very aggressively. And the whole country saw this press presentation, and it really fit perfectly with the government's narrative of her as this kind of savage foreign terrorist just bent on the destruction of the country. And at that point, I think it became impossible to even conceive of anything other than a full conviction. It strikes me that the U.S. government has been deeply involved in South America, Central America, and yet maybe I should speak for myself, but I feel like America's knowledge of South America is very limited. What do you make of that? I think that's absolutely true. I think it's probably true that um, a large percentage of Americans couldn't find Peru on a map, couldn't name a single uh, president in the history of Peru, whereas when I lived in Peru, you had school children who could recite the names of every single U.S. president in history. I mean, people from other countries know a whole lot more about the United States and its politics and its policies than people in the United States know about foreign countries, particularly countries in the developing world. And so I think that is in great portion responsible for this, exactly the history of interventions that you're talking about, whether it's the Bay of Pigs, the invasion of Iraq, or, you know, just a few weeks ago, there was a group of American mercenaries based out of Florida who were arrested in Venezuela, trying to join up with um, an opposition movement to, to stage a coup against President Nicolas Maduro. So there's a whole history of this. And uh, I'm sorry to say that usually when Americans get themselves into positions like this, you get the full force of the U.S. government kind of pounding the table at the U.N. or wherever and demanding that these Americans who have been so wrongly treated um, be released and sent home. In the case of Lori Berenson, it worked out quite differently. I'm not going to reveal how the novel ends. It truly surprised me. But what happened to Berenson? 
she was originally sentenced to life in prison um, after there was a change of administration in Peru in 2000. That sentence by the military court was vacated, and she was given a new trial, a civilian trial, where she was convicted again on somewhat different charges and sentenced to 20 years, including time served. She was paroled after 15 years. Um, that was in 2010. But the conditions of the parole were that she needed to remain in Peru until the sentence expired in 2015, uh, which she did. Uh, and she returned to the United States with her son, who had been born while she was in prison. And from there, the trail kind of goes cold. I'm not really sure what's become of her. Um, I certainly wouldn't blame her for wanting to stay out of the news for the rest of her life. And you haven't tried to contact her or ever get in touch? I thought about it early on in the writing of the novel, but it was very obvious to me from the very beginning that, first of all, I didn't want to write a nonfiction book. I didn't want to write the true story of what happened to Lori Berenson because the things I wanted to explore thematically and psychologically were only loosely related to that story, if at all. And so um, while it would have been really interesting to sit down with her and hear her version of what happened, it also seemed to me that it would be a real ethical problem to talk to her and hear her tell me the story and then to go write something different. So I, I needed to continue making it clear by the way the novel itself develops that it doesn't aspire to be a true story. It's not trying to say what really happened to Lori Berenson. It's trying to explore things in a different direction. Andrew, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on the show, Andrea. Andrew Altschul wrote the novel The Gringa. It's based on the true story of an American woman who lived in Peru. She was found guilty in 1996 for collaborating with terrorists. Altschul is an assistant professor at Colorado State University. We spoke last June. The Gringa is a finalist for a Colorado Book Award in the literary fiction category. Winners will be announced later this month. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. We've made the next pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. The author is pastor and counselor Paula Stone Williams. Her memoir is about walking in other people's shoes. Williams may be best known for her TED Talks. There is no way a well-educated white male can understand how much the culture is tilted in his favor. There's no way he can understand it because it's all he's ever known and all he ever will know. And conversely, there's no way that a woman can understand the full import of that because being a female is all she's ever known. She might have an inkling that she's working twice as hard for half as much, but she has no idea how much harder it is for her than it is for the guy in the Brooks Brothers jacket in the office across the hall. I know, I was that guy. And I thought I was one of the good guys. Sensitive to women. Egalitarian. Williams is a trans woman. She writes about all she lost and learned and gained after her transition at age 60. The book is called As a Woman. Get a hold of a copy and join Ryan Warner on June 30th for a virtual discussion. You can ask the author questions and we'll record the event to air on Colorado Matters. Tickets are free at CPR.org slash turn the page. 
finally today to understand the lives of enslaved Africans, turn to their spirituals, songs certainly of sorrow and despair, but also of hope and strength. Ride On King Jesus, performed here by the Jera Gospel Choir. It's the latest song to be featured in Journey to Freedom, the Spirituals Radio Project. The project is a year-long series from our colleagues at CPR Classical. They highlight a different spiritual each month. Ride On King Jesus depicts Christ as a hero on a horse, signaling a triumph over slavery. At CPR.org, learn more about Ride on King Jesus, including why some African Americans shun the song after the Civil War. Again, part of Journey to Freedom, the Spirituals Radio Project from CPR Classical. And that's it from us at Colorado Matters. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.